The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, come to you again in prayer, thankful that you are here to hear us, that because of Christ by the Spirit, we can come into your presence and ask you for help in our time of need, for grace and for mercy. We are in time of need, Lord, all of us are always, and we are right now in time of need for you to give grace and mercy to remove from us sin that entangles and blocks and clouds, burdens, deceives. So, Father, rest on us now and in this next moment speak to each of us about sin that inhibits us and then remove it. I pray forgive us. Thank you for mercy. And we ask you for grace now to give us minds that are attentive and hear your word and see where it touches our lives. Give us grace to understand it and grace to apply it. We ask you for this. And I thank you for the promise that we just sang of, fruitful if in Christ abiding. I'm thankful, Lord, that you have given us a vital living connection to you. And you invite us to to come and drink of it all the time, to abide in you, and that in so doing, you will bear fruit in our lives. I bless you for that. I thank you for that. And I pray that we would experience some of it now, even as I speak and as we listen. And then going out from here, Lord, that you will have moved us, drawn us to abide in you a little more consistently, that fruit would grow. You are good and gracious, God, and we thank you. We thank you for your word and pray that you would open it to us now. You would speak, that you would change us, that you would build your church, and you would help us to understand who we are in relation to each other and in relation to you. So help us, Lord, we pray, and in Christ's name I pray it. Amen. What would you think if at some point I sat down with you, maybe maybe in my study or maybe at a coffee shop or something, and I, I said to you, you know, in some ways I've had a difficult week. I've been thinking about this for a little while, but on Tuesday I finally acted. And I, I say this to you, I had to make some difficult decisions at my bank. I had to fire two of the tellers. And I cut back the hours of one of the financial advisors. I'm a pastor. We're sitting in my study, and I tell you what I've done at my bank. How do, you, how do you take this? You know, I reduced the hours of this one, this one financial advisor. She was just sitting around anyway. I mean, nobody goes to your local bank for real advice. And the last time I went to the drive-thru, I just sat there forever. I mean, the tellers are practically incompetent. 
So, let him go. It was a little difficult. They kind of resisted. Evidently, they hadn't seen it coming. Maybe they hadn't read the performance reviews that I mailed to the bank last month. You're listening to this. What are you thinking? What's this guy talking about? It's his bank only in the sense that he has some money there and that he goes to it occasionally and uses some of the resources. Those people don't work for him. What is he talking about? Firing some people, reducing their hours, sending in job reviews. If he's serious, he's crazy. If he's serious, there's some ridiculous pride there. Those people work for somebody else, and he's presuming to judge the servants of someone else? What? A little odd, if you have that kind of a conversation with me about my bank, a lot of us have that kind of conversation about people in the church all the time. And if we're serious about it, it's a little bit odd, full of pride, as we in the church presume to judge someone else's servants. People in the church who work for someone else, not for me, and yet I write the job review, at least in my mind, I mail it in, I reduce their hours, I want to dismiss them. They don't work for me. This is the kind of issue, this is the issue that 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is raising for us again. The propensity of people in the church to sit in evaluating judgment of ministers in the church, though they have no grounds for it. A common issue. Paul faced it in Corinth. Some said, I follow Paul because I have sat in judgment on Apollos and decided that he is not worthy. Or perhaps the other way around. I follow Apollos because I have sat in judgment on Cephas and decided that he is not worthy. I have decided. I have dismissed. I have lifted up. I have done this with people who are not my servants. On what grounds? We've been preaching through 1 Corinthians. And we've seen that repeatedly throughout these first several chapters. Paul is raising this issue, addressing this issue that's been raised with him, actually. The problem of discord in the church in Corinth. Particularly circulating around these leaders, we might call them. Ministers in the church. Factions that have formed around different ones. He's addressing that problem repeatedly. Most of the time, in the first several chapters, he addresses it by raising the gospel in front of their eyes and preaching to them the gospel. The gospel that, when expressed and understood, undercuts all human pride. It draws us to God who has done everything for us and undercuts our human tendency to think that we are something. It's that human pride that sits at the root of judgment. So he preaches the gospel. But he also raises another problem, which we saw first in chapter 3, a complete misunderstanding of what servants in the church are and who they serve. 
And that's the issue that we come back to again this morning in chapter 4. He raises up in chapter 3, verse 5, ministers are just servants assigned by God to do God's work in God's field or God's building, God's church. Ministers are servants of Christ. And this morning, like I did last time when we were in chapter 3 looking at this, I'm going to use that word minister on purpose to create some deliberate ambiguity. Minister with, with an uppercase M, with a capital M, a minister. That Initially, that's what Paul means. He talks about Apollos and himself in verse 5. Carries them on down through, and that's what he's addressing again in our chapter 4. So he means official called ministers distinct from the congregation, separate from the church. So I'm going to use minister to capture that category of people, but also, as you may recall, these ministers are sent by God to the church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that they can be sent out also. So with maybe with a lowercase m, all of us are ministers. So uppercase, lowercase, and I want to use the word minister to point out that we're talking primarily and especially about the uppercase ministers and ministers, but none of us are very far from this text. All of us are in it at least as the congregation And then also, I hope you keep in mind, I'm also in it because you are called to be a minister too. So I'm going to use that word from time to time. Keep in mind, you are both the congregation and you are the minister. So let me read the passage. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and then I'll explain kind of where we're going and unpack it a little bit. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Beginning of 1 Corinthians 4. If I summarize that paragraph, the, the main point, I'd express it in a sentence like this. We are called to be stewards of God's gospel, judged only by Him. We ministers... Remember the ambiguity of the word, uppercase and lowercase too. We ministers are called to be stewards of God's gospel judged only by Him. There are a couple of parts of that sentence. What we're to do and then how that's evaluated. And those are going to be the two observations that I'm going to break it apart into now. So let me get the first observation. It has to do with what we what we are called to be, what we are called to do. 
God calls His ministers to a trustworthy stewardship of the Gospel. God calls His ministers to a trustworthy stewardship of the Gospel. Starting in verse 1, Paul in essence brings us back to what what we were discussing in chapter 3 before he got a little bit sidetracked into the discussion of all things being yours. He kind of went off on something there at the very end of 3. But here now he brings it back to discussing what ministers are. Comes back to this. And like he mentioned up above in verses 5 and 6, ministers are instruments in God's hands called by Him for the purpose of building up the church. This is how you should think of us. How you should regard us, he says in verse 1. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Not, let me say this as an aside here. I need to, at the same time, simultaneously underline something. And I want to acknowledge that there's a bit of awkwardness to it and that I'm talking about me and you. And I don't want to be pugnacious about this, but I, but I gotta underline it because it's in the Bible and this is the point. So I want to underline this, servants of Christ, not servants of the church. Now, is there some way in which I am your servant? Sure. And we're all each other's servants? Yes. That's not what he's talking about. This is how you should think of us as servants of Christ. Owned by Christ, called by Christ, possessed by Christ. And to emphasize that even more so, he adds in the word steward. In verse 1 and in verse 2. A steward was a household or estate manager. Someone who administers his master's property. So you've got a master who owns something, and, and this is very common in that day. It's, it's in the Bible in numerous places. Even last week, our passage last week, remember Galatians 4, how they were talking about the young boy who had a steward set over him by the master? Very common illustration, very common image in that day. And so when you think of a steward, you should think there's a master who owns something, and he has a steward that he or maybe she entrusts something to that steward and says, carry out this responsibility. You don't own it. The master does. But I've given something to you for you to do, and I'm concerned about it. When Paul uses this, it is extremely helpful and clarifying for us. Sets up the whole passage. Think about ministers as stewards, which should right away tell us there's a master, there's something entrusted to the steward, And the steward must report only to the master. That's the one to whom he or she must give an account. We aren't freelance leaders. We aren't leaders in the service of the congregation. Ministers are stewards of God, servants of God. Sets up the whole passage. Stewards... Well, entrusted with what? Not the church, generally speaking. Certainly there is a responsibility that a minister has to the church that God has entrusted to that minister at that time. Certainly there is a responsibility. It's not what's being emphasized. And not the programs of the church. 
while certainly there is a responsibility given to a minister to think about what do we do and how do we do it, how do we function, how do we make this organization work, that's not the primary deal either. Entrusted with the mysteries of God. This is job one, and and so thoroughly job one that it becomes the only job. A steward entrusted by the master with the mysteries of God. What does that mean? What are the mysteries of God? When Paul writes about the mystery in the New Testament, he does this repeatedly, he's not referring to things that are, are confusing or puzzling things known only to God. He's not talking about how do how do human freedom and responsibility and God's sovereignty work together? Why is the sky blue? You know what? What are the how, how do men and women differ? He's not talking about things that are that are confusing conundrums for us. What he means is always something very particular, and we see it even in this book, back in chapter two, verse seven. Your English translation may use the word mystery or it may not, but in Greek it's the same word. Back in 2, verse 7, Paul talks about imparting a secret, there's the word, and hidden wisdom of God. It's secret and hidden. This is the the common way this is used in the New Testament. It's secret and hidden in the sense of back then it was secret, it was unknown, but now it is revealed, made clear, at least to those to whom he gives the Spirit so that they can see it. So it's not unknown, hidden, mysterious. It used to be, now it's clear. What is he talking about? Well, what is he talking about? You know. Put it in a sentence. The hidden, secret, wisdom, mystery of God in the past that has now been imparted by Paul is the truth surrounding God's plan to save His people by providing a sufficient sacrifice for their sin. All the truth involved around that. To put it another way, it's the Gospel. The message of Christ crucified to pay for sin and bring us to God. There are a lot of, a lot of pieces of that. That is the mystery. That message The danger of, one of the dangers of having all of this in our own language, in our fingertips, coming to church and hearing this every week, the danger in it, and I say this a lot, is that it becomes way too familiar for us. This message, unknown, mysterious in the past, and now laid out, revealed, and open to us, is the centerpiece of God's work in all of His creation and our only hope. The glory of God is revealed in a, rem- in a remarkable degree to a tremendous depth in what He has done at the cross. The glory of God shown, which is the glory that saves us from sure destruction. We had a tremendous, eternal, fatal problem of sin in rebellion against God. How can we fix this? What can be done about it? It was a mystery. Is there any solution? Yes, God acted. 
And the fact that that mystery, that message is known to you, is a marvelous miracle. It means everything for your eternity. The fact that you've heard it, that you know it, that you trust it if you do, is impossible to overstate. This message in all of its ramifications, the gospel, is God's greatest work and His greatest word to His creation. And it sits in your lap and is thoroughly known to you in your mind. Remarkable. The grace of God to bring that to you. The grace of God to change your life with it. That message is what He has entrusted to His Ministers, his stewards. And he requires, as verse 2 says, that these ministers be trustworthy with it. It only comes to you if ministers, stewards, are trustworthy with that which they have been given. Several thousand years old. And you know it because of trustworthiness. It's changed your life because of trustworthiness. He calls his ministers, his stewards, to trustworthiness. What does that mean? There are a lot of things we could talk about. Obviously, accuracy of message could come up. We're only trustworthy if we keep the accurate message. Diligence of time, we're only trustworthy if we actually give our lives to this. If we devote ourselves to the master's business of, of handing it out, if we don't just you know work for an hour and then take a seven hour coffee break. You all know people like that at work who, who are really good at what they do for the hour they do it. But you couldn't call them trustworthy. You couldn't call them faithful workers. It's more than just excellence. There's diligence involved. Proper demeanor that commends the gospel. He's going to come to that in the next chapter, in the rest of this chapter. He's going to come to what it's like to live a life that commends the gospel. But I think to ask what is trustworthiness with this gospel message, I think the thing we should look at most right here in this very context, Paul in chapter two. If we look at chapter two, verse one, he tells us what trustworthy ministering is. He says, when I came to you, I made some decisions. This is my life. My focused, conscious effort that I would not go about in lofty speech and human wisdom or things later, he says, plausible words of wisdom But instead, I would know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I would trust in the power of God the Spirit to take that message and make life happen when and where He chooses. That's the essence of trustworthiness with the Gospel. To make it central. Trusting God to bring life from it. That's pretty easy to state. It is difficult to do. 
a trustworthy stewardship of God's mysterious, beautiful, hope-filled message about Christ crucified. To be trustworthy in that means that I, as a minister with an uppercase M, you, as I help you to undertake the work of the ministry, you, we make it central in all that we do, in all that we talk about, such that we can say, I know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Immediately, you'll recall back in chapter 2 when we talked about this, it does not mean that we don't talk about anything else. I mean, read the rest of the book. I mean, the rest of Corinthians has a lot of other stuff in it. It is not just Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There are many other things to talk about. And Paul was there for 18 months. I believe he must have had lots of conversations The point is to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified means that in my mind, everything I'm talking about comes back to Christ and Him crucified or starts at Christ and Him crucified. Like a a flower, there are a lot of petals, but they all come back to the, the core, the center. This is trustworthiness with the gospel means that this is what I am about. This is what I put into my life. I'm centered on this. Not centered on countless other things. Not centered on my clever planning. Or my insight. Or my common sense. It's so easy to do that. It's so easy to get into a conversation with someone and begin to talk about what seems wise in your own eyes. Let me give you an example of what, what it would look like. To be a faithful steward of the gospel. To do with it what God means for you to do with it. To bring it into everything in life means something like this. I'm having a conversation with someone. And I'm going to not relate any details of any specific conversation. But everything I say, I have had conversations about. So understand this. This is real. And if you talk to people, this stuff will come up. I'm having a conversation with someone. A life thoroughly awash in, pick the detail, thoroughly awash in sex, thoroughly awash in alcohol, thoroughly awash in food, thoroughly awash in ministry that is my identity. Had all those conversations. Faithful steward of the gospel, what do I do here? Well, I, I give him advice about how to eat less. No, no. I, I, I set him up with some sort of an accountability so, so that when they're tempted to, someone else will... No, I, I teach him about passwords on computers and the wisdom of having your computer in a public place so people can see you. No. Well, all of that may be helpful... If I'm a faithful steward of the gospel, what I'm seeking to do in this conversation is say, how does the gospel, how do I know nothing but Christ and Him crucified in the midst of this person's, we could use the word addiction, we could use the word lusts, we could use the word, the more biblical word, rampant idolatry. 
How do I connect the gospel? No, nothing but Christ and Him crucified in the midst of this person's rampant idolatry. What are they doing in their hearts? What's going on in there? How does the gospel speak to that? That's what I'm trying to think about. And it may be above my head. The paths of the human heart are complicated. But that's what I'm thinking about. And maybe I'll understand a little bit. You know why you chase sex and why you can't get away from it? And why it's the place you always run when your heart feels empty and you look for pleasure? You know why? Because God has made a place in you that you are filling with the wrong thing, but it's a close thing. It's a close thing because God made sex to A, feel good, and B, come closest in our human experience to mirroring naked and not ashamed which is what we are supposed to be with God and what our hearts long for. And so you're running at something and missing it. When you click on that thing on the computer or hop into bed with him or her. Christ and Him crucified. If you could come to Christ and find Him, He promises, I will be the satisfaction of your soul. I am how you can be naked and not ashamed. Please, satisfied, filled with hope. Me. That's, that's what God is supposed to be for you. And that happens in Christ. And if I can connect those dots by the grace of God, If you can help someone connect those dots by the grace of God, you will be a a faithful steward of the gospel, carrying it into every situation in life, knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified there. Move over to there, or there, or there, or there. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. I picked one example. You talk to somebody gossiping in the hallway... Do you tell them, stop gossiping? Or do you think, how does the gospel apply to this? Because why do they gossip? Why do they gossip? What's going on in their hearts when they gossip? And how does the gospel that that forgives me of my sin and shows me an awesome and glorious God who has made a way for me to be joined to Him, how does that undercut what's going on in my heart behind gossip? That's you bringing the gospel into every situation. Faithful stewardship. This is what I and we are called to do because God means for the gospel to be at the center of a Christian's life, at the center of the church's life. Not our own human wisdom. Not what we heard it on Oprah yesterday. Not even what God has said in the law. When we're interacting with people, we must have the law. We cannot live below the law, but we have to live above it. We can't live below the law because we need to know what God says that's required of us. But as we saw, as I said a bunch of times in Deuteronomy, as we looked at the book of the law, God grows holiness in us not by law and punishment, but by grace and promise. What's grace and promise? That's the gospel. So we don't make our conversations centered on the law. We have to start there to find out what's required. We move on and say, I need to be about Christ and Him crucified. It takes work. It takes thought. It takes self-examination. By no means do I claim to be an expert. You know, I, I picked an example that I knew what to say about. 
I didn't pick an example I didn't understand. But there are plenty of examples I don't understand because the ways of the heart are complicated. But you're thinking like this if you're seeking to be a faithful steward of the gospel entrusted to you. And this gospel is what we need. Individually and as a church, it must be at the center. Accurately expressed, diligently expressed, sure. Commend it with a lifestyle, yes, absolutely. The most important part of stewardship is that this be what we put all of our chips on. We, we ride everything on the gospel. Don't sign up to be an elder if you don't want to be about that. In the church, uppercase M, minister, pastors and elders, that's what, that's what we must be about. That's what we must give our lives to. Perfectly? No. Unfortunately, no. But that's the particular calling on those types of ministers in the congregation, pastors and elders. But all of us, none of us are far from this, all of us have to think like this. He calls us to a faithful stewardship of the gospel. And I hope you see why. I hope in my little example you can see why. It's how you get freed from bondage. It's how you are delivered into joy. It's how the church has grown. God has set up stewards in His church for the growth and joy and blessing of His church. His glory and His church's growth and good is at stake here, which is why He will hold them, these ministers, accountable for what they do with the stewardship entrusted to them. That brings us to the second point. Picks up in verse 3. Oh, one other thing I need to say. Still on the, on the first point. It, it occurs to me that part of what I'm saying in that is for our good right now so that we can understand what faithful stewardship of the gospel looks like, what the, the ministry that needs to be at the center of our church is like, what ministers like me should be about. and So you can understand some of those things and pursue them yourselves and, and expect me to do those things. Part of that's for right now, but part of it also is, I hope, and I, I'm not announcing any plans here, but someday I won't be here. I won't. I'm going to get hit by a car or retire or leave or something. I won't be here forever. Prayerfully, by the grace of God, this congregation will be. And all of us, me and you, must be passing on so that when the next search committee forms to find the next senior pastor, they know what they're looking for. They are not looking for a good church manager or someone who can keep the programs running or someone... I say this very carefully. Or, or someone who is the designated compassionate person. That's not the minister's job. That's the deacon's job. 
So that you know when you're forming a search committee to find a pastor, an associate pastor or a senior pastor, when you're, when you're picking elders, you think what this person needs to be about is particularly gifted in the stewardship that God has for ministers. A stewardship of the gospel and an ability and a desire to put that front and center first and always. I won't vote for anybody who's not like that. So hopefully it's something way down the line in the future to be applied. But who knows? None of us is granted tomorrow. Now to the second point. Verse 3. Here's the point. The trustworthiness of God's stewards is determined and rewarded by God in due time. This required trustworthiness of God's stewards will be determined. It will be discovered and found out. It will be. But not by people. By God. And He will reward it in due time. We, ministers, uppercase and lowercase, we are judged on the question of the nature of our stewardship. And understand something. The passage several times uses the word judge. I'm going to mention that a few times too, just in mirroring the language of the passage. But understand that judgment here and on out is not talking about anything related to salvation. We're talking from here on out in this context about God evaluating, determining, judging, the faithfulness or trustworthiness of those to whom he has assigned this task. It's going to evaluate it, the text clearly says. So we're not talking about judging for salvation. We're not really even judging. We're not even really even talking about every single one of us judging sin in each other's lives. I'm sure there are things that could, that could apply about not being judgmental. But that's not particularly what I'm talking about. The passage is going somewhere else. It's talking about judging or determining the question of the nature of our stewardship. And this is not done by the congregation or by anybody. Verse 3. We are required to be found trustworthy, but I don't mean found trustworthy by you. Here's the part where I don't want to be combative with you, but you need to be honest by what the text says. It is a very small thing. It is inconsequential that I should be judged by you. Or by any human court. That's hard for me to say that because it's the first person pronoun even. But it is inconsequential. He's saying to them, it is silly and it is awful pride in you, Corinthians, to presume to judge the servants of another. It's not your job. It's not your right. Again, I want to be careful. Paul's in a situation where in their pride, the church is openly, actively presuming to sit in judgment on him and on the others, deciding which apostle or which pastor, Cephas and and Paul are apostles, Apollos is a pastor, which one of these guys they're going to follow. They're they're determining all that and, and picking and choosing. And it's in that context that he so bluntly dismisses their evaluation of him. So he's got... Get kind of a combative context there. He does not mean that 
if you change the context, that in no sense whatsoever does it matter what a congregation thinks of him or of its pastor like Apollos. He is not encouraging, and I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, he is not encouraging arrogant, independent, lone ranger leaders who don't listen to anybody. That's folly. He is not, if you were to change the context, he is not undermining any validity in in the perception of the congregation. After all, does he not tell, does he not write he himself that the congregation is the one that would evaluate the qualifications of an elder? Clearly the congregation's opinion matters. So be careful about the context here, but the main point here is very clear. The trustworthiness of God's stewards... How they have discharged this task that He has given them is determined finally in a judging, decisive sense, not by what anybody on earth thinks of them, but by God solely, by God alone. Which is why He commands in verse 5, don't pronounce judgment before the Lord comes, because that's not going to work. Just creates problems. A command of the congregation to not judge, which implies a command of the ministers, don't heed their judgments. Again, not don't heed their advice, don't heed their judgments. It's a very helpful thing. It's a very liberating thing. And again, I'm speaking in two different ways here. To those who are capital M ministers, it's a very liberating thing to know that the judgment of the congregation is not the deciding vote. There's a story of a, of a pastor long ago in England in the time when ministers were assigned and congregations were assigned to places and so everybody had their church and he's the guy there, he's preaching, but the church didn't want him. And so the church locked him out. Well, sort of, they couldn't. He had a key. He came to preach. They locked their pew boxes and went home, which meant there weren't any seats. Chairs were all in boxes, locked the pew boxes, left. So what do you do? You're the guy preaching. Everybody who would sit there left. Nobody else can sit anywhere. That went on for years. These people don't want me. These people don't like me. It was the clear message. But realizing that their opinion does not matter. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel and filled up all the aisles with people. They sat on the ground. They couldn't get into the locked boxes. They sat on the ground for years. It can be tremendously liberating for a minister with an uppercase or a lowercase M to realize, I am called to a faithful stewardship of this gospel and what the people think, those who, to whom I am speaking, whether they're in the church or not, ultimately, well, I can learn some things and I, I would be wise to listen to feedback. Ultimately, their verdict is a very small thing. It's important. Most people... Most people, ministers no different, 
very much struggle with the fear of man. Fearing what people say, what people think. And the strongest temptation is to evaluate the the feedback, the fear men and their opinions and their words and their actions, and in so doing, speak and act so as to please them and curry their favor, which is to betray the Master. And so God reminds ministers and congregations It is a very small thing what people decide about your faithfulness to the gospel. People do not determine faithfulness and stewardship. And interestingly, people includes even you yourself. Paul continues with some irony, and he emphasizes that still at the end of verse 3. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that does not mean that I am acquitted. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that does not mean that I'm right. The verdict of people, the congregation, and me, myself, the verdict of people is a very small thing. I go about a certain way of doing things. I do what I what seems to be best, what I what I think the Bible is saying, what what I feel that God's leading me to do in this particular situation, and and at the end of the day I, I don't feel any conviction against it, but it does not thereby mean that I am acquitted just because my conscience is clear. Our consciences are all subject to change and modification. And the thing about it is that we don't know where our blind spots are. By definition, we cannot fully accurately sift our own hearts. We cannot know perfectly our biases. We cannot escape our cultural grid. And we can't see where that grid has misshaped how we view life and time and resources and sacrifice and sin and leisure and vacation and truth and anthropology and psychology and marriage, etc., We bring a grid that tells us how all of those things are. And what I dismiss as, this is appropriate leisure time. Another culture may say, you lazy man. And I don't know which is right. I sit down, I consider it, I evaluate it. I don't have any conviction, but that doesn't mean I'm right. which should sober us a little bit. And it might make you ask, well, how in the world do I know if I'm being a faithful steward? If if even my own conscious evaluation of myself is not decisive, how do I know? I'm, I'm required, I'm called to a trustworthy stewardship of this message, and it seems like I have no way of knowing if I am being a trustworthy steward. What do I do? Well, it should sober us. There's something here that should sober us and should encourage us both. It should sober us because ultimately in the end, you cannot know definitively. That's what he's saying. 
I am not thereby acquitted. I, I can't know. Even Paul himself, charged all across the Mediterranean world planting churches, does not in the end know with a faithfulness. Was I trustworthy? All of us would say, oh my goodness. If there was ever a trustworthy man to be him, and Paul says, I can't be sure. Maybe I charged all across the Mediterranean world without Barnabas and John Paul in error. Or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe my effectiveness would have been if I had kept those guys, the son of encouragement, and had trained up John Mark to carry on, but I didn't. I don't know. There's something that should sober us there, that we can't give ourselves a free pass. And some of us, I think, probably need to to stop and ask God, I've given myself a free pass so far, but am I right? Maybe he'll give you some guidance. Maybe he'll convict you. Maybe he'll, he'll point out something to you. Ask him. But the encouraging thing in this should be that though I am not committed just because I don't see anything in me that would convict me, or you, don't see anything in you that would convict you, the encouraging thing is that it does not drive Paul to look harder. I am a bit of an over-introspective person. I know some of you are too. I've talked to some of you about this. Where you worry about sinning in some way and then are worried about the sin of worry and and then are worried that you're worrying about the sin of worry about this other sin. And my goodness, it just goes... And the fact that this would say, I'm required to be a trustworthy steward... And I can't know. I mean, I look at myself, I don't see anything. It's going to drive you to look harder. And to hyperanalyze and pull out your checkbook and find every dollar twenty-five check you wrote for a candy bar and, and say, I should not have done that. that. That money could have been used for the gospel. And the half hour you spent yesterday reading the paper, I could have been talking to my neighbor. Ah. And you're going to spiral and spiral and spiral and spiral. Paul does not say... I'm not aware of anything against myself, so I thought that I sat down and thought about it a little more. So I could become aware of more of me. Which was you can see how this work, which was a waste of time. I should have been talking to non Christians, so man. He doesn't say that. He says that just before that, I don't judge myself. And just after that, it's the Lord who judges me. In other words, judgment is not mine. So I leave that over there. And I realize there is a judgment at the end, and I want to pursue what God requires of me, what God calls me to, but I want to pursue it as a Christian. In other words, I want to pursue it as a person who says, there is a requirement, and by the grace of God I move towards it, and where I fall short, I'm covered. And there is therefore now no condemnation for me in Christ. I'm called to be a church planter, a founder, an apostle. And where I fell short of that, I'm covered. No condemnation.
And I'm just going to have to, says Paul, should say us, I'm going to have to, and thankfully I can, entrust myself to him who judges justly and let all that get worked out over there. And I'm going to move ahead, pursuing to the best of my ability the things that I know, open before God to be shown more, believing the gospel liberates you. Oh, look, we're nothing but Christ Him crucified, even in this. Believing the gospel liberates you to carry out the ministry of the gospel. In liberty. Not condemned by other people, not condemned by yourself. And knowing that you will not be condemned by Him either. Judgment does not rest in my hands. Judgment doesn't rest in any human being's hands. God alone judges, which is where he moves in verse 5. The Lord will come, the Lord will judge, and there's an important reason given there. Not just because he's God and he's in charge, but because he's the one who knows. When he comes, he will bring to light the things hidden in the dark and will disclose the purposes of the heart. seems to be two things that he's pointing out here, two slightly different things. One... The things hidden in the dark, something that's kind of implying a deception, a, a hiddenness. You know, we might look at Pastor so-and-so and say, man, what an awesome pastor, until we find out that he's been sleeping with so-and-so for years. How many times has that happened in Christianity? Or we might look at Pastor so-and-so and say, man, what a miserable failure, not knowing What God has expected of him based on what God has given him, based on where God has placed him, he's doing a marvelous job and that anybody's even listening. The sheer size of a church, the sheer publicity of a ministry is in itself irrelevant. We have to ask more deeply, we have to seek more deeply to find out what's actually going on there. And really, ultimately... We can't find out, which is why we had best not issue a judgment. God brings to light the things hidden in the dark and the things, the purposes of the heart. That's kind of leaning towards not just stuff that's about deception, that's stuff about what's going on in here that I can't discern. Could be that I'm driven to preach or that I'm driven to study Because it's my idol. Not out of love for God and love for people, but out of love for me. That could be. Who can know that but God? We can maybe get clues. Ultimately, He's the one who reveals the purposes of the heart. And so we had best leave judgment to Him. And He will do it well. And the encouraging hope, the, the encouraging point... The last sentence. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. We must not judge God's stewards. We must leave that to God to judge his stewards. And the thrust of the, of the last sentence is an indication that he's a good and gracious and generous judge. Does he have a standard? Absolutely. Is there requirements? Yes. But he is eager to bestow on his ministers, uppercase or lowercase, 
blessing and favor and honor. And this is important to keep in mind when the evaluation of the world is a negative one. There's a song we sing sometimes. I think it's I think it's the song of Psalm 62. The fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. That, that line usually brings me to tears when I sing that. I need to remember that. They're harvested in heaven. It is God who gives commendation or praise or reward. Everything is known. He brings to His servants reward. Now, we talked about in chapter 3, what is that reward? It doesn't specify. I think it's probably good. At least it is the verbal approval. And sometimes, as I said before, sometimes isn't that all we want? Isn't all you want sometimes for your father to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Nice job. That is excellent. That's sufficient sometimes. And I think it's also possible, speculating, I think it's also possible that because all of God's reward in heaven is the intimacy of us with God Himself for whom our souls are made, I think it's also possible, I suspect, that there's some degree of greater intimacy with God then and forever. Akin to what comrades who have shared in the battle know. Some of you are veterans. All of us can probably imagine this. The buddy that you share an office with and the buddy that you share a foxhole with are really different. They're different types of relationships. You've shared in some of the danger. You've seen some of the hardship. You have persevered through some of the the most frightening, most harrowing times and have come out the other side of it different with this person. You are a comrade. And I think that part of what we will experience with God and the fellowship with Him in heaven is, Father, we were comrades in something. You entrusted to me a stewardship. You gave me an assignment that I carried out to the best of my ability by Your power given to me. And I saw You move. It was awesome. I experienced something with you. I saw this man come to faith in Christ. I saw this woman grow. You did it and you used me. We were with it together. We'll experience that and know him, I think, in a slightly different way than the minister who didn't. There is no condemnation for you, but I don't think you want to be that second minister. I think you want to be the first one. For your joy, for the pleasure that it will that you'll find there in walking with Him in that way forever. Hope in that reward. Do not hope in the rewards found here on earth, handed out by men. All of them perish. We are called to be faithful stewards of the Gospel, judged only by God. In due time, rewarded by Him. Believe in that. Hope in that. 
and discharge the duties of your ministry. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would call us to faithful stewardship. Those of us here who are in some way set apart ministers and all of us who are ministers. I pray that you would create between us a proper understanding of our relationship, both under you in a different way. I pray, Father, that where I have miscommunicated, where I have, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel conviction, doesn't mean I'm acquitted. Where I have miscommunicated in pride or some sort of a combative attitude, forgive me if I have sinned. I don't know what to say. Cover it. Help it to sit right with these, your people. We are your people. You have given us a tremendous message that you mean to work into every piece of our lives for our growth and for our joy as well as for your glory. And I pray that you would make us effective and faithful stewards of that calling. You would build your church by this means. You would honor your Son here. Do this, I pray, for His glory and for the good of us, His people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.